Today's scripture comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 48, verses 14 to 20. Please stand for the reading of the word. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into the multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offering, offsprings shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. This is the word of God. Yesterday we had a... Iron Chef competition cook-off event in which I had the great uh, dismay of being a judge. And um, I, I said honor, right? That's what I meant. And I got to taste a lot of their cooking. It was good. That's why I'm still here. Uh, and it was actually excellent. Each and every dish was well-prepared, well-thought-out, uh, was very surprising to me who had won. Not because you guys weren't good, it's just surprising to me. And it was an excellent, all the dishes around were excellent. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if we do that again, I hope more people will show and just show your uh, love for cooking and serving. There is something about cooking, right? If you've done it before, and then you're cooking not to just feed yourself, but you're cooking for someone else. You keep that other person in mind. You think about how I can serve the other person, please the other person, edify. And there is something about cooking which is pretty profound, and we got to be the benefactors of that cooking, the, the pastors. And I just wanted to thank all the participants that were there. Uh, to me, you're all winners, <clears throat> even though only one got a prize. But I am looking forward to the future of Iron Chef in CGS. That being said, um, I did want to mention that I was surprised at the winner because the one that was the most elegantly and beautifully plated, uh, the one that had the most um, exquisite and exotic garnishes, uh, they, and to me, tasted right up there with restaurant quality. Surprising to me, uh, they didn't win. And I was thinking, maybe I scored it wrong, but it's too late now. Uh, maybe I added the math, it's too late now. Maybe I uh, just got to lift it up to God. Um, Pastor Esther made sure that all the evidence of our judge, judging was completely destroyed, so that's, we can't dig that up <laughs> to even double check. Um, 
But I was thinking about it all last night, and even when I was having dinner, I was mentioning it, and uh, this morning too, and it really is incredible because it has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. What we think is going to happen sometimes doesn't happen. What we, th- what we sh- sometimes expect sometimes seems obvious isn't. Uh, with that being said, uh, let's pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Uh, we have in this chapter two parts. The first part is the adoption, and the second part is the blessing. So we have the adoption and the blessing. And one thing to note before we begin, it's that the adoption comes before the blessing. The adoption comes before the blessing. And Jacob is about to die. And they tell Joseph, so he brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, over to Jacob. And when Jacob sees them, he does this ritual. But he first proclaims that he has been given the vision by God and he will be the dispenser of the godly blessings. This is what God has given him, the authority that God has given him, and Jacob is going to dispense the blessings. But before he does it, he does this ritual of adoption. And it's so important we don't just skip to the blessing because if it was, then this part wouldn't be there, but it is. And so when he, puts, he takes both Manasseh and Ephraim and puts them on his knees and he starts saying that these children are now my children. Um, he says something really interesting. He says that it's go- they're, they're my children just like Reuben and Simeon are my children. Reuben and Simeon, if you don't know, were the first two born to Jacob by Leah. Reuben being the firstborn and Simeon being the secondborn, Levi being the third, Judah being the fourth and going on. And so he says, just like Reuben and Simeon are my sons, they are my sons. So he fully adopts both Manasseh and Ephraim. Why is this important? Because in biblical adoption, it's a little different from modern day adoption. Biblical adoption the adoptees not only get a new identity, but all the old obligations and the debts are wiped out. New obligations are assumed. And the adoptee becomes of the same standing and position as the adopter. Number one, how it affects you is relationship. You get to call the one that adopted you father and mother. And although because Rachel died early, you see Jacob mentioned in verse 7, he mentions it saying that she died early and didn't get to be a mother to them. But he is actually saying Rachel is now your mother. You both are now my sons. What happens when we become an adoptee is we start to represent our parents. And perhaps in American or Western culture, that's a little lost, but I believe many of us who are familiar with Asian culture, it's still there to a degree, or many times to a very heavy degree. You represent your father, 
you represent your mother. You are as your father is and you are as your mother is. This is still kind of felt today because it's not absolutely separated. Because if I took one of our beautiful babies, and we have a lot of babies, if I took one of our beautiful babies and I slapped the baby, the baby will feel pain, yes, but the parents will feel like you just slapped me. Likewise, if I take the child and I love on the child and I pour out my affections and love for the child, who gets to feel that love? The parents feel that love because you are loving their child. There's a hint for you. If someone has a baby, treat them really nicely and it's like you're treating them nicely. But a relationship is now formed once you become an adoptee. It's not just a legal contract, but there's a relationship that's formed. And with the relationship that's formed, there is an inheritance. The inheritance is we get to be heirs of the father. In modern law, we don't have that kind of same feel. Heir means that this person must die first and then I get the inheritance. But that is not how it was, not only in Old Testament times or even in Roman times. Heirs is heirs uh, presumptive, means we assume all the property already. We, we don't become emancipated at the age of 21 and become adults and then you get control over your own property. It is children of any age, whether you're a natural child or you're an adopted child, we are already heirs of the living father and have joint control over the property. And that's why in Romans 8.17, Paul is saying, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So in other words, it's birth, not death, that constitutes heirship. In the Bible, it's birth, not death, that constitutes heirship. And that's what makes a family a family. This is what God is instituting. And in this case, God is instituting it through Jacob, and he is testifying of the Spirit's work that makes us rich in the glorious things that are to come. And what is to come? And that's how we move on to the second portion. The second portion is the blessings. A lot of people are just really excited when we're about to get the blessings or about to get the prize. So it's important that we know what kind of blessings we are longing for and waiting for and what kind of blessings actually await us. And Joseph, he brings Manasseh, the firstborn, towards Jacob's right hand and Ephraim towards Jacob's left hand, the secondborn. Because the right hand signifies greater blessing. Mind you, most people are right-handed, which means the right hand is stronger. So when you went like that, so it all kind of symbolized something. So the stronger or the greater blessing would have come traditionally and symbolically through the right hand. So Joseph puts Manasseh to Jacob's right hand like this, and then Ephraim, the secondborn, to Jacob's left hand. And in Jacob's old age, he does something incredible. 
He sees the kids come to him. Remember, he adopted them as their own, so he, ha- he gives them a fatherly blessing. And he sees them come to him, and he crosses his hands. And this is my whole point of God's wisdom. What Jacob received was so incredible that he had to display it in his life. And what he recognized and what he saw, he couldn't get away from. So all the tradition that was there, all the things that were passed down that he thought was right, you see him do something surprising. And Joseph's not in it because he doesn't know. He didn't see the vision. So he doesn't know what's going on. So when Jacob crosses his hands, it says, this displeased Joseph. In the actual Hebrew, displeased is the word for evil. He thought that what he saw was actually wrong, deep down wrong. This is not right. And he tried to correct his father. He's like, this isn't right. You got to correct this. And he tries to put Jacob's hands back. But Jacob replies that I mean to do what I do. And I know what I am doing. And mind you, Jacob is in the position of authority here. Joseph may have been greater in the land of Egypt. He may have had greater authority politically through the state or government, but Jacob was the one who had spiritual authority and that was greater. Joseph acknowledges this authority when in verse 12, he is the one that bows down to his face to the ground, which is a contra dream of what Joseph had. Remember, the dream that Joseph grew up with was everybody was always bowing down to him. But you see, there's a reversal that takes place when the spiritual authority is given to Jacob. He knows that he is to bow down to Jacob. And Jacob, even though knowing that Joseph is the one who is equal to Pharaoh, king of the greatest nation in the world, Joseph humbles himself before the one who mediates God's promises and blessings And Jacob, knowing this, switches his hands and blesses Ephraim before Manasseh. We see this come to pass all throughout the Old Testament as it goes on. And we see that this blessing actually does come true. We see it in Numbers. We see it right in Exodus where you see Ephraim's clan continue to increase and Reuben's continue to decrease. Ephraim's clan becomes synonymous with the northern tribes of Israel, whether it be blessing or curse that God is giving. Uh, what is even in Hosea chapter 4 and 5, he's talk, God talks about how Israel and Ephraim will be cursed or there will be a punishment, but he uses Ephraim and Israel interchangeably. So Ephraim does have this kind of incredible blessing where Ephraim represents all of Israel. Now this is what should start to give us some insight into God's wisdom. God's wisdom is not man's wisdom, and our wisdom is not God's wisdom. It's different. Sometimes we don't understand it, and the question that we can't help but to ask a lot of times when we see something like this, and we saw it, Jacob saw it come to pass in his life because he saw that he was the one blessed over Esau. He saw that Isaac was the one blessed over his older brother, and he saw this continuing to take place. And so we can't help but to ask, why? Why is God doing this? And when Jesus comes into the picture, 
In Matthew chapter 9, all the way at the uh, chapter 19, all the way at the end, he says that, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And to put that into some context, it was when a rich young ruler approached Jesus and he wanted to do anything, anything that you want me to do, I want to follow you. And Jesus goes, then give up your riches. And he couldn't do it. And he walked away. And he goes, it's so difficult to enter into the kingdom of God if you are rich. Not impossible, it's difficult. And then he ends it by saying, many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter goes, we have left everything to follow you. And then he goes, yeah. And then he tells another parable. And this is a really interesting parable because it's either a response over to what Peter was saying or it's something to clarify what last being first or first being last means. And there were all these workers. And in the beginning, you got workers in the beginning of the daytime, and you had them work the fields from 9 to 5. And then around noon, he went out again, and he got more workers. So then now they're working from noon to 5 or sunset. And then he went out again, and he got them at 3 and from three to sunset or five, whatever the work hours are, they got them to work in the harvest field. And finally, people, he got them again just to finish up the, the last bits. And then at the end of the day, in the parable, it says the master gave everyone each the same pay. This is very different from what social justice reform and things like that that we're fighting for even today. No one's asking for more pay doing less work. Imagine holding a sign, we want more pay, less work. You know, like who's going to do that? I want to work from 9 to 10 and that's it. Pay me my $100,000. Uh, it won't fly. But in this case, the master actually does that. And then people went up to him and said, why would you do something like that? It's not fair. And the response was, the master gave you everything that he had promised you. Did he cheat you? This was what was promised. This was what was agreed upon. If you think about it, when you believe in Christ, we all get this pay. When you receive Christ in your life, this is something that we continue to go over in many Sunday sermons. When you receive Christ in your life, you get eternal life. You get the pay. You can live, which is amazing. It doesn't matter when you believe, but when you believe. And that is how he ends the parable. And you're like, wait, I still don't get it. Okay, okay, I get you can do whatever you want to do, God, but am I supposed to understand this? Or what am I supposed to do with this information now? Do I do whatever I want? Because if I want to do whatever I want, then I continue to read Romans, and then you're like, no, that's, that's going to damn me. I can't do whatever I want. Can I just say then I'm just going to believe at the end of my life and live whatever way I want now because we're all going to get eternal life anyway and then you continue to read the Bible and the answer is no to that because that will also be damning. And you start seeing a little picture into what God's wisdom is. In the book of James, James in chapter 3 writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I know you're trying to follow along, and this is just an incredible, incredible passage because the wisdom of the world now, what the Bible is saying, not only is not only fall short, but will fall to death. It's not only un, like not good, but it is demonic. Um, one thing that I mention when I see this, I can't help but to I can't help but to remember this story. A pastor told me a long time ago that he used to be part of this group and it was a group called Teens of Christ. And this Teens of Christ, at first, people thought, oh, oh this is like you know, another hippie group for Christians because it was back in the 60s, this hippie group. And they're, they're just you know, kind of these young people so excited for Christ. And it kind of got more and more extreme. And I see what they are doing kind of playing out in modern churches even today was when they saw something and they saw it was hypocritical in the church, they couldn't stay still. And they would pick it outside and they would yell at the pastor, how dare you do this, how dare you do that. In fact, it continued to get more and more extreme where they would even sit in the front pews of churches holding pickets while the pastor was trying to preach a sermon, yelling at the, yelling at the preacher, condemning them. It reminds me because there's a, a, a culture of people being birthed or they were growing up in the church and they see, oh, this is the way the church should be and this is the way the church should function. And when they think it's wrong, they see, oh my goodness, the church is functioning like the Pharisees. Jesus hated Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. I have to do something. But what's intriguing is the way we deal with Pharisaic activity is by being a Pharisee. We use Pharisaic methods to deal with Pharisees, which to me is so ironic. But this is what Teens of Christ did. And they would stand in the front picketing, shouting hate, and saying, you don't know, we know. And the pastor that was speaking to me would tell me he was, when he was young, he was this big guy, he was a football player, and we got some big guys here, and he was a football player in college, and, he, and they would tell him later on, be like, you know, college is bad, and you shouldn't go. And he was like, okay, but there were, there were people on fire, people on fire, and I'm not saying for Christ, because We'll see where you'll see where this goes. But they were on fire. Their prayer meetings, oh man. Prophecy dropping left and right. Opening up the scriptures, boom, exactly to the point that I needed at the time. You saw you saw, you had people witnessing power. But the question James is bringing up is what kind of power? 
We shouldn't be tantalized and enticed by any kind of power. That's why we have to question what kind of wisdom, what kind of power is in this place. Teens of Christ eventually became bigger and bigger. And when the pastor was telling me, he was telling me a story, the, the way he realized that this was wrong, he was driving down the street with his mom and he saw a guy walk out of a church in the middle of the day. He walked out of church and he just pointed at the man. And he goes, look at that hypocrite. And his mom was like, whoa, what's wrong with you? And he had an awakening moment. And that was grace. That was grace. He left Teens of Christ, but he continued to follow uh, what they did and where they were. And Teens of Christ eventually became a group, and they renamed themselves or rebranded themselves, and they called themselves the Children of God. The Children of God is a very well-known cult in our time now. In fact, they still exist. They're very small, like 30 members or 50 members, but they still exist surprisingly. Children of God, and this is where... Um, James is saying, if you continue to follow the wisdom that's not of God, and you continue to follow the wisdom of the world, what you are doing is more and more extremely what? So the more we follow a path, we become more extreme. So more we follow the path that is holy, that is good, that is edifying, we ourselves become more holy and good and edifying. But if I continue on this path, path, the worldly wisdom, the more I follow this path, and my life is in eternity, isn't it? We're going to continue to go on eternally. All right, so the more and more I follow this path that is not of God, that is earthly, that is unspiritual, that is demonic, what happens is it becomes more and more demonic. And I saw some of the pamphlets they would give out. And some of the pamphlets they would give out is we have, we need to show the love of God. And in this world, sex is so um, emphasized. Sex is an idol, but we don't want to make sex an idol. So what we want to do is we want to love each other and freely have sex with each other, but not make it an idol. And to people, that actually made sense. And if you think that's funny, look at how our contemporary culture teaches us how to live. You think that's, you think that's crazy that a cult would say, we got to love each other and sex is okay. But what are we saying as a contemporary culture in the world today, in secular society, when we go out to college campuses, what is it that we hear? What is it that we start to believe? What is the path that we are going toward? And so they continue to go down this path. Um, and the path led to more and more extremely demonic things, more and more extremely evil things, where they even had um, sex with young children, babies, and they would be in a ritual setting. We think it's crazy because it's in a ritual setting, but you take the ritual out and that stuff is everywhere. Um, in 1993, there was a TV host that doesn't have a show now, but he was famous called Larry King, and he asked a former member who knew such policies actually existed. You had to actually have sex with a child to continue to grow in this uh, cult. And 
he asked if you knew of these policies and the person being interviewed said yes. Um, and then he asked if you did any of them and the person being interviewed said yes because I was ordered in the group to have sex with a 10-year-old by the leadership of the group. King asked, did you? And he said, yes. It was to get me in so deep that I would be afraid to ever come out and speak against the group. I continue to follow this group, um, and the son of the cult leader eventually made a video of himself and before he killed himself, he shot himself, he was spewing so much anger and rage that as a little child and baby, they would do these things to him. And it completely destroyed his mind and his spirit seemed unredeemable. And that was caught on video before he did uh, end his own life. The question that we continue to ask, and you think I'm bringing this extreme, this is way too much. This is, this is zero to 100, Pastor Eugene. This is not what we are going through. But I'm saying if you had eternity to live, you are walking in one of two directions. Either you are walking toward God, becoming more like him, or you are walking away from God, becoming less like him, becoming demonic. That is the truth. Which wisdom are you attaining? Which wisdom are you yearning for? Which direction is your life moving? What is the ultimate destination of your actions, your thoughts, and your spirit? Right now, before you enter service, this past week, what were your thoughts on? What have your actions been toward? Where is your spirit? We go back and ask this very important question. What's the point of giving the same wage to all the workers? God's wisdom is there for us to follow and receive, but God's wisdom shows that he is the one that gets the glory because it is only in his way that there is life. The point of the rich young ruler's story is that it's to see that if we rely on any other wisdom, if we put and place all of our chips, all of our life energy, everything that we have, and that isn't God, what it's going to lead to is dismay, hopelessness, essentially death, not life. If we rely on any other wisdom or power that is not God, then we fail. Paul continues to write, and this time a letter to the Corinthians, and he continues to expand and show the wisdom of why God does it this way, that we have to follow God's way so we don't get trapped in this evil. We don't get trapped in a path that we feel like we can never escape again. What is the wisdom of God? And why does he choose to do it this way? He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence 
of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Every week we have certain prayers, and these are important prayers of our liturgy and our service, but after every sermon, there is a time of prayer. And that time of prayer is for us to respond to the message that we've given. There is a reason why Jacob crosses his hands and eventually we see that what the world thought was right wasn't right all along because every time we go the way we think the world is right, it continually leads to death, continually leads to hopelessness. And when he crosses his hands, he is showing us that God will make a way which no one will ever have thought of, but this way will be ultimate truth, ultimate life, ultimate purity. You really wanna know how to love you really want to know how to care for someone deeply, profoundly, sincerely? Then what's God's wisdom? You attain God's wisdom. What is God's wisdom when we see that God's wisdom is Jesus Christ? You want to know how to love? We follow what Jesus Christ did. And even if we're not perfect right now, what we are is we are on the path. And this is what we are saying. In response to a message, when we have a time of prayer, we are praying, God, now that I've heard the word, now that I've heard the scripture, do work in my heart so that every step is guided by you. That I am not enticed by the things of this world. In the beginning, it sounds nice. You get this pamphlet that says, oh my goodness, yeah, sex with everybody, that's how you show love, yeah, that's awesome. But then you continue on that path and you see you are actually not satisfied. You, do, you don't become whole. In fact, you become emptier and emptier. And God shows us that wisdom doesn't lead to life. It's not that he wants to become a killjoy. It's not that he wants to be the stern, like, old dictator over you, but he wants to give you life and life to the full, so he shows us his wisdom. And it is Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you now, as we conclude, that we pray to the Lord to do a work in our hearts. Only by the Holy Spirit can that happen. This is something that we cannot do on our own. So this is why we pray. We pray, God, make my paths straight so that I can follow you all of my days. That the promises of Christ I can hold on to. That I can fully have a healthy and abundant relationship with my Father. Let's pray at this time. Once again, I want to encourage you as you pray, lift up this prayer to the Lord that it is the Lord that will open your eyes and open your heart so that you can truly see the truth and the hope that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.